0: If I have the audacity to show my face in the street, there are certain fans that are like, look at you smiling. You don't even, you you don't give a toss. You were terrible at the weekend.
1: Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to raise aspirations and inspire the next generation of category-defining founders. From purpose-led entrepreneurs to Olympic champions, you'll learn firsthand from today's successful leaders on what it takes to be brilliant all in just 40 minutes. Today, I'm joined by Clark Carlisle, a former professional footballer, chairman of the PFA and an active mental health advocate and ambassador for the mental health charity Mind. Clark's football career began when he made his debut for Blackpool in 1997 and during his illustrious career, he played for a number of top clubs, including Leeds United, Watford and Burnley. He also won three caps for England under-21s. Alongside all the successes also came hardship, including serious injuries from football, his battle with depression and attempted suicide. Clark has been refreshingly open and honest about his mental health journey. And alongside his wife, Carrie, they have become influential voices in opening up dialogue about mental health in and outside of football. We had the real honour of having Carrie on the podcast a couple of years back when we hosted a mental health roundtable. So I am particularly grateful that Clark is now joining us to share his inspiring story. So Clark, welcome to 40 Minute Mentor. How are things?
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah, uh, not bad. Not bad at all, James. Not bad at all. It's, uh, It's awesome to connect with one of my wife's former protégés because she uh, she taught you, didn't she, way back
1: Yeah, she did. It's crazy how much of a small world it is. And I loved Carrie. She was an amazing teacher. We were speaking a little bit offline just there. I haven't gone into the arts or sort of treaded the boards anytime recently, but I still have such fond memories of the lessons that Carrie ran. And uh, yeah, my wife and I, who both went to school together, both sort of always had her as our like favourite teacher. So yeah, it's so nice for us to be able to chat as well. I've been looking forward to this for a while because I know of your story through, through Carrie and obviously everything that's out there and you're a real inspiration to me personally. And I know so many other people out there. But before we get into the story, I'm going to have to warm you up like we do with all of our guests with some quickfire questions. So please finish these sentences after me. I grew up wanting to be...
0: I love you. Categorically, without hesitation, I was fascinated with law, especially courtroom law.
1: Interesting. Where did that come from? That fascination.
0: Telly. <laughs> well, you know, back in the day, uh, movies not like it is now. You know, you don't have the whole world uh, on on a on a screen that you have access to. So, you know, once I came home from school. And you, you behind your front door, all you had were your parents, your siblings, and four channels on the telly. And so we were forced to watch whatever it was that mom and dad were watching. And invariably, that was detective stuff. And uh, I was so intrigued; I loved it.
1: Oh, amazing! That's a great one. A misconception people have about me is oh, what a good question. Is that I'm
0: aggressive? That's what I would say. And that that stems from two aspects. I think one is my football career. Because I was a, you know, a big ugly centre half, and I was old school as well. You know, I think people thought that I was the same person off the pitch that I was on the pitch. When I was, you know, I'm I'm just a really meek, gentle guy. I wouldn't say boo to a goose unless you're trying to score a goal. But I'm going to take your ankles. <laughs> Another aspect to that as well is being a six foot four black man. You know, I think people, especially when you grow up in a in a heavily white community like I did, and and the places that I've lived have been predominantly white. I think there's there's a misconception that an intimidating presence is married with aggression, uh, and you know, it, we'll probably come to it later down the line. But I think it, it's that's informed a lot of my actions and reactions in social settings. You know, for a large part of my life, where I'm trying to confound that notion that I'm an intimidating or aggressive person. Yeah. So I think that, yeah, that's the misconception about me.
1: Yeah, and I think we will come on to talk about that more. It's really unfair, isn't it, that you know the way you're born in all ways, you know, size, ethnicity. It's really unfair that people come with preconceived notions of who you are because of those things that you can't change. And I think that's just one of the the worst things about bat life is a lot of people do judge books by their covers, and and you just never should do that. I'm keen to come on to that more. So thank you for sharing. Third, quickfire question: The last time I cried was when.
0: Oh, it was just a few days ago, actually, because, um, you know, my auntie passed away out the blue, um, the epitome of, of upper middle class wellness all the life, you know, goes on mountain climbing holidays, skiing holidays, uh, her and my uncle cycling across America, has a bit of stomach ache 10 days ago, uh, goes to hospital, she's diagnosed with liver cancer, uh, and then within 10 days, you know, she's passed away, so oh, I'm yeah, so it sorry. was a few days ago. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You know, it's it's one of those things, but just one of those things that really confuses me. You know, sometimes life and especially illness can be wholly illogical. But then again, I suppose that feeds into the narrative around adverse mental health. You know, it doesn't follow the course of logic in many situations.
1: That's very true. And I guess that's the one thing about your health is you can never really take it for granted. You hear these horrible situations where something just comes out of the blue like that, and it's, it's, it's awful. Um, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. If there is one thing that you could change about entrepreneurship or this sort of a being a business owner, what would it be?
0: Ooh, I would change the fact that it is more who you know, rather than what you know, or what your idea is that gets you up and on that ladder. You know, I've witnessed it firsthand, I've, I've witnessed it anecdotally, uh, I've witnessed it especially through, you know, the path that my father tried to forge. You can have, seemingly, you can have all the intelligence, uh, work ethic, application in the world, but if you don't know the right people, you don't get off the ground, and that infuriates me.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, I think there'll be a lot of people nodding their head along to that one, particularly in the world that we come from in, in the startup world and the VC world. It's, there's still a huge amount of nepotism that goes on. And one of the things we've been trying to do with the podcast was to bring much more equality to the guests we bring and diversity to the guests we bring to kind of give a voice to those that don't always get the same leg up in life. So, uh, yeah, I really appreciate you saying that. Final question. Uh, my biggest failure to date is.
0: Oh, wow. God, I thought you said these warm-ups. That is... <laughs> we go deep early, Clark. We go deep early. <laughs> what I would say, James, it would be the relationship that I had with my eldest child, my, my, my daughter, Francesca, between the ages, for her, of probably three and 13. Because um, my father did when I was really young. I was only 18 years old when she was born. And at that point in life, I had no understanding uh, of parental responsibility. Well, not no understanding. My understanding was warped uh, and it was informed by very different things. And in my mind, you know, chasing a football career was far more important than actually spending time with my daughter. In fact, in my mind, me sending her and her mother money back every month was me fulfilling my duty. Because I never had any, any you know, financial uh, support or backing as a child, or socially, what do you call it? underprivileged household? That's what they call them, you know. So in my mind, me sending them money was me fulfilling my duties as a father. I mean, it's only coming through the journey that I have and what I know and understand now about provision and about connection and about relationships. I uh, I am aware now that time and listening and being there is far more important than any financial provision. You know, so from 13 onwards, she's 24 now, from 13 onwards, the last 10 years, you know, we've nurtured a relationship that I'm proud of. So ironically, it's my biggest failure, but it's also what I would say is one of my biggest successes.
1: That's amazing, yeah. And I think it's, it's actually a really nice segue to to sort of the first question. And thank you for the quick fire. I know they're not always. They're actually we go deep early on purpose because I think it's a great way for our listeners to get a sense of you and your personality and a bit of the backstory. But we're going to go deeper now. But I think that that is really interesting that you, you obviously had a you know a child at a very young age at the beginning of your football career, and it makes me ask actually. Do you think clubs need to give more support in terms of just like life education? Because if something like that happens, understandably, if you haven't had much experience and you don't necessarily have the network around you that can give you that support, that is becomes your life, right? The club is your life at that time. Do you think football clubs need to give more support on those sorts of more pastoral things?
0: It's it's quite a difficult topic to address, really, because, I mean, if you take the employer aspect of it, you know, how much intrusion should an employer Having to an employee's life you know we tend to treat football differently because it's football you know and we hold it to a different set of standards and accountability than we would any other workplace but that being said, there are very few other workplaces where you're plucked from your natural social order, probably at the age of seven eight, nine. And then you're institutionalized and pushed towards this dream. And at 16 years of age, you're expected to cross that line and become an adult and, you know, a a knowledgeable part of, of this new industry. So when you take that into account, we're crossing more into the duty of care aspect, aren't we? And with that in mind, I would say, James, that clubs have to do far more, far more, because they've taken the professional technical, tactical, and physical aspect of player education, that's off the scale. You know, with all the social science, modern technology that's introduced, all of the safety awareness on a physical aspect, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, they've taken that to the nth degree. But what have they actually done to enable these young men and young women now, with the professionalization of the women's game and the academies that are coming through there, What have they done to educate these people about their whole selves beyond this vocation of football? What have they done to help them understand their values and their worth in society beyond the pitch? And my experience and what I see now is very little and nowhere near enough. You know, it's just nowhere near commensurate with the need especially when the dropout rate in football from 10 years of age to 16, the dropout rate is 99%. And then once you get through there, it drops down to 99.9% by the age of 21. Yet all of these people have had their whole mind and lives totally engrossed with, with football to the detriment of usually everything else, not only academia, but also, you know, social relationships that their friends, their friendships, cultivating an identity and a knowledge of who they are. So that football needs to do so much more. And again, it's even more nuanced than that, James, because people look at football as an industry, thinking that football can do something and change everything. But what they don't seem to understand is that First of all, because of all the different leagues, you've got different stakeholders. You've got the FA, the EFL, the Premier League, and the Players' Union. All four of those are fighting to be the first or the best at whatever's provided. So you often get a a disconnect between what's delivered. But below that, there are 92 football clubs. And these aren't football. These are individual employers. So what's happening at Notts County isn't what's happening at Manchester United or, or, or Liverpool. So there's a there's a dearth of knowledge and information sharing. There's a dearth of uniform application where we know that player A at the bottom of League 2 is getting exactly the same support and coverage and information as player B at the top mm. of the Premier League.
1: Mm. Yeah. I mean, you've hit on to such an important topic and maybe this for a, a, another conversation, but it feels like there's so much opportunity, but also so much missed opportunity thus far to support a lot of people that, that, that will really need it. Because as you say, the vast majority of people, uh, professional footballers don't make it probably through that academy system. And when you, when you've had your heart set on, a career and then all of a sudden that's taken away from you I guess to come on to our conversation later around mental health that is going to have a significant effect and if you don't have the support network there that can take you off on a whole different path so thank you for sharing that and I guess I, wa- I wanted to take you back to those early days and I think it was 97 you signed your first professional contract I'd imagine that you know, so much blood, sweat, and tears had gone into that point, and it must have been an incredible feeling to to know that you were going to become a prof- professional footballer. Can you take us back to that? How did you get up to that point, and what did it feel like when you, you know, signed on that on the piece of paper?
0: Well, it, it meant so much to me, and so much more than me just getting a job. <laughs> you know, so much more even than just getting a job in the sport that I love, because football had a, a layered meaning to me, and that was because. You know, growing up, didn't really get much quality time with me old man for a plethora of reasons. But predominantly, you know, his identity was that of a it was a classic traditional identity, hunter, gatherer, provider, disciplinarian, blah, blah, blah. You know, that, that was me dad at home. But he couldn't get a job. And he couldn't get a job because he was a six foot five black man in the north of England in the 70s and 80s. So, you know, dad dealt with that the way a lot of Caribbean men did and still do, he locked himself in his room and he smoked weed, you know. So there were large tranches of my youth where I didn't really get much quality time with my dad. But I did get it when football was around because dad used to play Saturday and Sunday League and I went to watch him every game he played. And then when I started to play Sunday League at the age of 12, my dad and my granddad came to every game that I played. You know, so it was heavily rooted in this quality time and positive affirmation from my dad. So by the time I I, I get to Blackpool, not only do I sign a a professional contract, but on my home debut, I scored a 91st minute winner,
1: which as a defender is just honestly,
0: (laughs) oh, mate, the dreams don't even get to the feeling that I felt in that moment. It was euphoric. It was incredible. You know, I'm running over to my mum, my dad and my granddad in the stand with all these feelings just bursting out, you know. Not only the professional achievement, but the emotional attachment that, you know, it was paying back dad and granddad for ferrying me all around the county trying to chase this dream and, and it was showing my mum that I was good enough and I was, you know, I could do this. It was so loaded on so many levels. It, it was, it, it was incredible. It really was.
1: Mate, I can't I can't imagine. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's off the scale.
0: The amazing thing is, is that when I signed for Blackpool, I left home the day after my last GCSE and I moved to Blackpool and I was on £27.50 a week, James. Wow. And to me, it was a millionaire, it was it was a millionaire salary because we never had any money growing up. So you know, even though it sounds like a pittance, I was getting paid to go and play football every week, and I was like, "Oh, twenty seven fifty every week." <laughs> <laughs> it was more than I got my paper round. But uh, then I signed my first contract, two hundred and fifty pound a week, and that was a heck of a day,
1: mate. It really wow. was. Incredible, incredible! And look, you've had an incredibly decorated career. What for you were the the biggest highlights? And I guess you would have also had to play with incredible players and amazing managers. Like, tell us a bit about some of the the people and moments that had the biggest impression and lasting impression on you. Play moments.
0: Well, you mentioned I got some youth caps for England
1: under twenty one caps, and they were just
0: incredible. You know, because. trying to tell you there how proud I was in that moment playing for Blackpool in front of 2,000 fans. You know, can you imagine how proud I was standing with three lines on my chest, singing the national anthem? You know, my mum, dad, my granddad they're all crying in the stand. It it was just an incredible moment. You know, that felt awesome. At club level, winning the playoff final with Burnley at a refurbed Wembley Stadium, 90,000 people there and I was man of the match uh, and we'd earned the right to play in the Premier League. Again, it's it's something that that you just can't convey with words. They will not do justice to the feelings that were felt at that final whistle. And they weren't just feelings of like joy, delight, euphoria. Do you know, there were feelings of relief. There was huge relief because the whole season rided on that last 90 minutes. And if you lost it, (coughs) which, you know, unfortunately I've had the experience of losing a couple of playoff finals. When you lose that playoff final, your season is abject failure. You know, even though you've gotten to that showpiece event, you might have finished third in the table, but it's abject failure because you were this far from a life-changing win.
1: You know, so to actually win that one, yeah, oh, would well, they always say, don't they, the championship one is financially like the most lucrative game in, in the country, isn't it? Because it gives you that kind of the jewels to the crown. Yeah, it
0: is. It's the most lucrative match in football. But it's not just for them, because for you as an individual, you know, the likelihood is your salary is going to double, uh, if, if not more. You know, the, we're talking life changing changes in your employment circumstances. You know, the value of you as a commodity goes through the roof. It's incredible. Well, there are a couple of people, you said people who have had an impact on me in football. One interesting compare and contrast that I'll give you, which I think is good for for a podcast like this. I won two championship playoff finals, one with Watford at Millennium Stadium and one with Burnley at Wembley. And um, the managers, you couldn't get two different managers. (laughs) They were Total opposite of each other. AD Boothroyd at Watford, this guy was meticulous. He was scientific. Everything. When we turned up for training on the 1st of June in pre-season, he could tell us exactly what session we were going to be doing on the 3rd of March next year. What intensity, blah, 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 blah. Everything was scripted and meticulous. The way that we played was, you know, it was almost mechanical. We were so organised. We just steamrolled teams you know with with our performance whereas the Burnley manager Owen Coyle (laughs) this guy was the most unprofessional man (laughs) I have ever ever (laughs) worked with right we used to play crossing and shooting for Krispy Kreme donuts and we used to do (laughs) small-sided games for crates of iron brew I mean at Burnley we were the fattest squad in the league but we were the happiest squad in the league and those two different managerial styles, I mean, it really showed to me that there are many different ways to skin a cat. There's one guy who is, you know, is right into the minutiae. If we do this, the law of averages and percentages says that this will likely be the outcome. Whereas on the other hand, Owen Coyle, he was human centric. When we came into work, he was like, how are you? How are the family? Excellent. Let's go and play some football. You know, so you could either be ruthlessly efficient or Owen's approach was he wanted you to want to be at work. He wanted you to feel valued and feel like more than just a footballer. And with his model, uh, let me tell you, that side, we were a bunch of ragamuffins, but the, the unity that we had, that togetherness, we were greater than the sum of our parts. You know, we ran through brick walls for each other. So I think that's really interesting that totally
1: like almost diametrically opposite styles yet both were successful that's so interesting and i think it says a lot about there are different leadership styles and you can create high-performing teams with very very different approaches it's really really fascinating to hear i really hope you're enjoying today's episode so far but before we continue hearing from today's mentor i wanted to take a minute to give a shout out to our series sponsors alchemist Alchemist is an industry-leading learning and development company using immersive and interactive experiences to help increase employee engagement, levels of happiness and achievement across your teams and overall productivity. Alchemist presents L&D departments with an opportunity to innovate and be bold in their approaches to blended learning. If you love the sound of this as much as we do here at JBM, then head over to thisisalchemist.com forward slash 40-minute mentor to learn more. And now back to our 40-minute mentor. I guess we've talked about some of those amazing moments in your career but I know there were challenges there were dark days you had a lot of injuries and setbacks I guess in a difficult economic climate where people are losing their jobs and there's going to be a lot of people listening to this that might be going through a challenging time right now I'd love your advice on how you bounce back from some of those difficult moments in your footballing career have you got any advice for anyone listening about how they can build the resilience to kind of go again
0: Oh, it's a really good question, that James. Because well, I kind of find that resilience is one of those ethereal terms. You know, uh, where's the tangibility to it? And it's something that I've I've only understood after the fact what resilience is. Uh, and, it, and if I I try and reflect and break it down, I, I think there are a couple of components that need to remain either at a constant or you step them up when you're going through adversity and one of them if i go back to my injuries is never to give up that work ethic when i was at qpr i'd just moved there from blackpool i'd just uh, made my debut for england under 21s you know things were going really well and then i got the most comprehensive knee injury the surgeon actually said that he thought i was going to have to walk with a stick after that and my career was over now i was injured for 2 years Two years on the sideline, in the physio hut, looking out of a porter cabin, watching everyone else do that thing that I love every single day. You know, being totally surplus to requirements. You're not needed in meetings. The manager and the coaches don't speak to you. You know, your persona non grata. But when that happened, I did not stop working on me. And this is in a physical sense. You know, I, I did my rehabilitation. I trained as hard as I possibly could. I didn't give up hope in myself. What's the because? Well, it's because I believed that if I work hard enough and if I give everything, that anything is possible. You know, it's a mantra that my, my father taught me, even though his life was the total opposite. I find it incredible that he, he managed to sell that into us. So when things aren't going well, your work ethic needs to remain. If not, step up a little bit more. You know, you please don't lose that drive to work at what you're doing because the goal or the outcome isn't currently visible.
1: Yeah, it's such good advice. That work ethic piece, I guess, is is in your control, isn't it? Whereas so many other factors are not. You have that control and clearly you're a great example of that.
0: Oh, thank you. And and I totally agree. You know, you you can... I've learned this at many different steps, you know, control your controllables and things that are beyond your control, then you have to have a a mindset of allowance. There are some things that you cannot affect, but you can control your action and response, you know, with with regards to what's going on. And, And this is where I come on to probably a more emotional and psychological aspect of going through those tough times. One of the the most important things that keeps me well nowadays, and it's stark contrast to what's happened to me in years past, because especially in and around football, I lived a life of success or failure. Everything was polemic. There was no middle ground, you know. So whether it was the match, you won, you lost. Uh, and that that really fed into my lifestyle you know, it fed into my relationships, it fed into daily tasks. If I didn't empty the dishwasher by the time it, the kettle had boiled, I'd lost, and it meant that I was a lesser person, you know. So I, I needed to understand that having this middle ground was okay. And in being in this middle ground, I had to train myself to have a mind of gratitude, and rather than chasing happiness or success. What I now look for as one of my core states is that of contentment. And Carrie rails against this because her understanding of being content is to settle for. It's like, oh, I'll settle for this. I'll settle for that. That's not how I I am using the term contentment. Contentment is to be grateful for what you have now. So I'm not dulling aspiration. You know, I, I'm not trying to gloss over anything that's going on that, that, that might be suboptimal, but to keep, yourself on, to keep myself on an even keel, I know that there is always something that I can have gratitude for. So I set some reflection time. It's usually at 10 o'clock at night. I'll spend half an hour. I'll reflect on my day. I will go through the successes and failures, but I will always end on, what am I grateful for today? And let me tell you, no matter what your circumstance, there is always something that you can show gratitude for. And I think that that enables me to keep this even keel rather than allowing my emotions to ride the highs of a success uh, and feel the lows uh, of any kind of failure.
1: Yeah, it's great advice. And I think something probably a lot of people listening, myself included, need to hear. I've talked about before on this podcast, the life of a, being a founder, a startup founder, in the early days, everything is so heightened that every win, every new contract, every new client feels like you're on top of the world. Every loss, every rejection, every it is like, you know, it took me days to get over people turning down jobs or losing out on a pitch or something like that. And then you get to the point 10 years down the line, as I am now where for your own mental health and just well-being, you have to just not get as excited or as kind of down about it and actually just keeping on that even keel. And I love that framing it as uh, what can you be grateful for is a really nice way of keeping yourself sort of steady. So I love that.
0: A lot of people like search for happiness. You know, you say we
1: should be happy. We need to be happy.
0: The thing about happiness is it's an emotion and it's transient. So if you're searching for happiness then you're setting yourself up to, for large periods, to be suboptimal, to be less than. You know, your, your happiness will come and go. So, you know, don't anchor yourself in, in an emotion. Anchor yourself in a state that you can catalyze, that you can focus on, that you can be in, irrespective of the emotions that are going on around you. Just like you said, in that 10-year journey that you've had, I think one of the most important factors that I would, I would tell anyone and everyone, whether you're 16 or 76, is when you're experiencing failures in your project, in your initiative, in your work, when it's not going however which way you want it to go, we need to have that understanding that this project, this initiative, this job, this vocation, they do not define me as a human being. They do not define my worth and my value because this isn't the only job. This isn't the only project. This isn't the only industry or sector that I can ever work in. And my skills, no matter what they are, they are always translatable, no matter how specific they are. So, yeah, understand and assess your successes within the projects, the initiative, the sector. But your value and your worth does
1: not depend on that. Yeah, that's amazing, Clark. And again, I think I'm hoping this is going to be just the tonic for people that need it right now to hear this. I wanted to talk a bit about your retirement from football, you know, back in, in 2013, because I, I guess, you know, we talked earlier about how you you build your, you know, your as a footballer or a professional athlete, you know, you spend your whole life gearing towards his career. And in the grand scheme of things, it's a relatively short one, one that can be curtailed much earlier if you get a bad injury or whatever. You had a a great career, but you had your ups and downs throughout it. How did you get to the point in 2013 that you realised it was the time to retire? And how was that experience for you? Because I'd imagine that can be a really, really, really difficult time, or it can be one where you could perhaps look at it slightly differently. So how did you sort of feel at that moment? That's a
0: really good question, James. Uh, And I came to it. Basically, my body told me I had to retire. In my final season at Northampton, I was having to have painkilling injections in both ankles for the whole season to get through games. For the last month, for the last seven games, I had to have painkillers in both ankles and an anaesthetic at half-time. And in the playoff final, which was my last ever game of football, I had both ankles strapped to 90 degrees, rigid, painkillers before we set off, before the game and at half time, and then an anaesthetic afterwards to deal with the pain that that was going to come when, when I was going home. So at that point as well, my middle two children, they were obviously much younger. They were only, I think, three and five, four and six. And by the time I got home, they're wanting to interact with me and I can't move, you know, and it, it gets to a point where you're kind of like, right... I, Do I drag out another year or two of football at at the potential cost of, you know, um, totally incapacitating myself? Or do I stop now and try and afford some quality of movement in my life so that I can, you know, enjoy my young children and and interact at home? So that that choice was made for me, really, physically. But also to run in tandem with that, he said... How did I find it? I mean, I studied for a degree in broadcasting because I always had a vision of going into media, punditry or commentary, and I actually got a job offer from ITV to do co-commentary with them. So that came at the same time as my body, my ankles specifically failing. I thought, okay, now's the time. But with all the practical kind of thought and application in the world, nothing prepared me for that loss of identity. That I had without football, you know, like, like I said uh, earlier, that understanding of your whole self beyond your vocation I'd never gone through that, you know, so without football, without those successes and those failures, the wins and the losses, me proving or redeeming myself, I, I had nothing, and it's not just that I had nothing, I felt that I was of no value to those around me, because you know the industry of football is so pervasive. If you win a match, if I win a match, I feel like I'm a good dad and I'm a good member of my community because all the fans that I interact with on a daily basis are like, oh, excellent, well done. You know, you were great at the weekend. I go home, we've got a win bonus. So, you know, my, my family can get a little bit extra this week. I'm like, yeah, I'm being a good dad. But if I lose, then I feel like I, I'm not providing for the family. And if I had the audacity to show my face in the street, there are certain fans that are like, look at you smiling. You don't even, you, you don't give a toss. You were terrible at the weekend. You know, there's this illusion of ownership where it, it totally pervades your, your private life. So because of that, because football was everything, when it was taken away, I had no understanding of my value in life without it. And that hole, that chasm, oh my gosh. Incredible, James. Incredible. You know, it's compounded because people would be like, Oh, didn't you used to be Clark Carlisle? I'm like, Oh, I still am. I just don't play football anymore. You know, so even though I made the transition job wise, emotionally and psychologically, I hadn't. And um, it took me to a very, very dark place of, of hypercritical and negative self talk and rumination.
1: Right, yeah, I think it's so important to, to hear that, but and it's really understandable. Being a footballer, especially in the UK, I can't think of a, a better job when it's going well, and I can't think of a worse one when it's going badly Because you, as you said, you get it from all sides—from social media, from being in the streets. You know the the pressure you put on yourself as well. So I can completely understand that how losing that identity is a really difficult thing to come to terms with. You mentioned that it took you to some dark places, and I know that that sadly, this as your mental health deteriorated um, post retirement culminated in you attempting to commit suicide suicide is one of those topics that i guess is still there's a big taboo around it and we don't all talk about it enough i think because i think by talking about it we can really help those that might be struggling at the moment do you mind sharing a bit more about how you got to that point point? and i think particularly it would be interesting to know why at that time did you feel that there wasn't a way out and, and that you couldn't necessarily talk to somebody uh, about what you were going through
0: I definitely can totally agree. we need to speak about suicide more so that people have a greater understanding you know they they can start to identify you know little flags along a psychological journey where they can say actually uh, you know i'm I'm going to seek attention for this rather than allowing it to get to where I got to. My adverse mental health journey started back in two thousand and one with that knee injury. You know, I had the, that same thought about football and my identity in football at that point. My belief was that without it, I was of no value to anyone. So I was housebound. I was flatbound in a two-bed flat in action after my operation. All I did in that time for a five-week period was drink on my own in a flat, and um, in that haze, I didn't speak to anyone because it was it was 2001. It wasn't a thing. Speaking wasn't a thing. You know, um, not only that, James, the way that I've been brought up, my identity and belief system around managing problems that have been forged way before then, you know my my dad showed me that you deal with your business, you don't talk about your business, you know, if I was crying, it's like, I'll give you something to cry about, you don't show you know you don't show them negative emotions, so everything that generational conditioning brought me to the point where when I'm dealing with a trauma. I believe I, I've got to fix it. Uh, and, you know, that that's what being a man is about. That's, you know, my belief about masculinity. Because I thought I couldn't, I took an overdose, coproximal. Fortunately for me, I was found and my stomach was pumped. But I didn't engage with any services because that wasn't a thing. You know, I, I was discharged from hospital with a with the, with the saying like, well, you got away with that one, don't be so stupid next time. I was like, oh, okay, you know. So my mindset was I'd gotten away with it. Uh, We don't talk about it. We pretend it never happened. That was the start of my depression, even though I didn't know it, not diagnosed with anyone. It was because of that that trauma there. And then I go through uh, 14 more years of football. And, um, you know, I keep going through these depressive episodes, but I don't know the depressive episodes. And what I'm doing, I'm trying to self-medicating them, either by drinking or, or, you know, by dangerous self-sabotage behavior. What I didn't know was that because I, I suppressed these negative emotions, namely sadness, fear, anxiety, and anger, any of these four emotions were coming, I would suppress them, hide them, hide them. And ultimately they would explode. And they would explode in this self-sabotage behavior because I couldn't mask them anymore. And my behavior, it it was in the early years, I thought that I, I was an alcoholic or I thought I was an addict, but that wasn't it. What was happening was I was desperately trying to avoid these emotions and these thoughts and the only way i knew to get get away from them to hide from them was to either drink until i didn't care anymore or get my mind totally absorbed in something so i wasn't you know i wasn't thinking about what went before it's a horrible self-perpetuating state because i'd never been encouraged to talk so everything stayed in here and when you're in that depressive attitude that depressive mindset it's all hypercritical You take every situation to the nth degree, always with that negative outcome. And without sharing it, without any objectivity, it becomes your fact. And that was my fact. But when I did retire in 2013, you know, this is a really important point because a lot of people don't understand the difference between actively suicidal, suicidal ideation, and just passive intrusive thought. You know, but everybody has intrusive thoughts. 86% of people, according to one study, get that thought, uh, you know, oh gosh, I just wish I weren't here. You know, I wish a ground had opened up and swallowed me up. You know, just having that passive thought, that's not being suicidal or, you know, that's not actively suicidal, just an intrusive thought. The difference between suicidal ideation, I'll give an example. Let's say you're having a chat with your partner and you think, oh, I could just poke you in the eye. I mean, you haven't, you know? It it doesn't mean you've assaulted them. It doesn't mean that you're a terrible person. It was just an intrusive thought. But if you go away from that conversation and you're sat on the couch and you're thinking, yeah, I'll do it with this finger. And then you get in the car and you think, yeah, I'll do it on a Wednesday because that's when other people will be there. And then you get to the shop and you're like, yeah, and I'm going to say this when I do it. And you'll say that that's ideation. When you start to really meticulously plan the physical aspects of whatever it is that intrusive thought was, that's the difference between passing thought and ideation. And it's at this point that you really, really have to get the right help. You have to open up and talk to someone. But I didn't know this. And the signs were loud and clear, James. You know, I was getting self-harm thoughts were driving on the motorway at night thinking, oh, I could just turn my car into this bridge or, you know, how long can I drive with my eyes closed? All of this dangerous behavior, dangerous thinking. But because I didn't share it with anyone, I just thought everyone thought like this. I just thought it was normal thinking. You know, I, I would really suggest anyone listening, just Google dysfunctional thinking, dysfunctional thinking patterns and play bingo. Because you'll be amazed at how many of them we use, you know, just from autopilot. And the amazing thing about it is that we can change those thinking patterns. But we can only change them, A, if we're conscious of them, and B, if we consciously work at it, you know, finding new ways and new patterns to put in. So, yeah, it was that complete lack of self-worth, lack of value, thinking that without football, that I was no one, having believing I had no one to speak to because speaking still wasn't a thing for me, you know. I put myself in front of a lorry 60 miles an hour on on the motorway in 2014. And James, I'm blessed. It's incredible. I'm blessed. Uh, I don't know why I'm alive, but not only am I alive, but I, I, I didn't even break a bone in my body. You know, I I find it quite incredible. Two days of operations to stitch me back together like, but, you know, I'm here. And it was from there that I, I entered into genuine psychiatric services. But it still wasn't for another two or three years, James, that I actually started to work on my wellness. For those first couple of years, I thought that just because I had my diagnosis and they'd given me my medication, that I was going to be all right. But, you know, the medication doesn't make you better. A diagnosis doesn't make you better. All the support services in the world out there don't make you better. What makes me better is me engaging with these services, with me honestly engaging with my therapy and me finding, you know, the root cause of whatever my depression is or adverse mental health, understanding my signs and symptoms and actively trying to change my conscious and cognitive responses. Unless I do that, then there's not going
1: to be any change. Yeah, i will just yeah. with myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but you're you're incredibly passionate about it and it's hard to hear but it's also, you are such an inspiration. I mean, h- how far you've come, just talking about it, as we said, is clearly such an important part of this, of, of hearing the testimony of somebody that's been through it and come out the other side. And it's a continual work in progress, of course. I think these things are, you don't just come through it and be okay. You have to keep working on it. I think the thing that's just so clear from what you said is the importance of, of speaking, sort of, of understanding the triggers and, and then also being comfortable to talk to people around you or professionals to get get the help that you need so how do we encourage more people to start thinking about it given that it is still a taboo i know i think we are making real strides in society around this topic but and particularly to any men listening to this that that really need to hear it but who are you know let's be honest not as good at you know and me being one of those people about showing our emotions and you know asking for help when we need it what what advice do you have for, for anyone listening that needs help right now
0: well, the thing about men especially is we're awesome at compartmentalizing, aren't we? You know, if something happens and we get emotions like, right, I'm going to put that in that box there. I'll, I'll just put it there. And we're brilliant at that. But compartmentalization is only productive if you then go back and deal with what you put in that compartment. Otherwise, it ends up like a bin bag, where you're like, I'll change it tomorrow, I'll change it tomorrow, I'll change it tomorrow. And then all of a sudden that bin bag explodes. Or if you try and lift it out, everything comes tumbling out. And you're not not covered in the last thing you put in there, you're covered in everything that you've crammed in there. And you try and understand what it is that's made that bin bag explode. And it's difficult because that banana skin's covered in spaghetti bolognese and it's stuck to a baked bean can. And, you know, everything's all intertwined. So when we compartmentalize, we need to go back and see and address what it is that we've put in there. Now, one of the fears, especially for for men, is that, you know, we're going to show this uh, perceived weakness or people are going to judge us or, or, you know, think less of us. Yes, it is good to talk, but please hear me. You don't have to be like me. You don't have to tell everyone, but it's imperative that you tell the right someone at the right time. And as guys, what we often tend to do is maybe go to a mate, uh, or sometimes we might go to our partners or a family member, sometimes, unlikely. I would advise against both of those, because your mate's invested in your happiness, and the likelihood is they'll say, oh, don't worry, fella, come on, we'll go and have a pint, and they try and distract you from what's going on your spouse, partner, family member, they're invested in your happiness and they love you so much, they might try and want to fix you themselves. Or they might take your feelings personally and react in a confrontational manner. Look, if you've got these emotions, these thoughts, these feelings that you must tell someone about, then go to people who are paid to listen to you. Go to people who are invested in your wellness, not your happiness. There are people there who can help, who want to help, and who are being paid to do so. So you don't have to be like me. You don't have to tell everyone. It doesn't have to be anyone else's information, but it's imperative that you tell the right someone at the right time.
1: Great advice, Clark. I'm sad that we're getting towards the end here. There's a couple more things that we really need to ask you before we do, but we're going to have to do a round two at some point because this is so much brilliant advice here. I know that you're a mind ambassador and you do all this fantastic mental health advocacy. And I think you've even, am I right in saying, built a university course with Carrie at the University of Central Lancashire. So can you tell us just a bit about the work you're doing, the course you've created and and why people should check it out?
0: Definitely, yeah. You know, Carrie and I have been working across the corporate sector, sharing our experiences, you know, trying to be that segue to support services and people accessing the resources offered by their EAP, et cetera, et cetera. And what we've found is that there's a huge portion of people in organizations around the country who've gone on a mental health first aid course, you know, 48 hours, and they go back to their company and suddenly they're charged with looking after the mental health and well-being of an entire organisation. And without, you know, the right qualification and guidance, these people are burning out and ending up having to use services themselves. You know, uh, largely the, the people who go on these courses, they go because they're driven by empathy, personal experience, and a passion, you know, for, in this area of mental health. And because of that, their boundaries about where their responsibility ends and professional services begin, they can be very vague and ambiguous. So we wanted to change that. We wanted to bridge that gap between just the passionate, empathetic volunteer and professional services. And so we've created a course that is a Level 4 Advanced Certificate in Mental Health Advocacy. It's brilliant. It goes through all the theory and the academia around adverse mental health, signs, symptoms, blah, blah, blah. But most importantly, the second week in semester two is all about the practical application. It's about instigating the conversations, it's about your body language, and it's about confident and competent signposting, knowing exactly where your responsibility ends giving you the capability to put those boundaries in place so that you're not receiving drunk dials at 2am from, you know, your your colleagues or any of your peers. And this is what we believe is the next level of competence that is needed in in, uh, workplace mental health.
1: Oh, it sounds fantastic, Clark. Well, all the very best for that. I hope our listeners will go check it out. And I've just really enjoyed this conversation. You really are every bit as inspiring as I knew you would be. And your story is such an important one to tell. So, genuinely, I mean, for me personally, but also I know all our listeners that you can take so much from the advice you've given. And I think it's just more important than ever, given the state of the world, and given you know, there's a lot going on. There's going to be people that really need to hear this today. So, so thank you so much. We have three final quick wrap-up questions that I've got to ask you, and I'd be interested in your answers. So in one sentence, what does the future hold for you? Um, Change and opportunity.
0: Change and opportunity. We, Carrie and I work on practice makes permanent. So no matter what my emotional, psychological state is now, we practice every day getting better and better. And that affords us greater opportunity because I'm more well and more capable and competent
1: than I've ever been. Love that. And if you could be mentored by anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why?
0: Uh, It would be my dad. My dad passed last year. And I say that, I know it sounds cliche, but it wasn't until I was sat on a psychiatric hospital bed that dad held my hand and told me he loved me, he was proud of me. And that started an open dialogue at 37 years of age this guy was so wise. If I'd have had the opportunity to listen to him for 20 years prior, my life would have been so very, very much more informed. So I wish I could go back and get
1: another 25 years with me online. That's a beautiful answer. And finally, Clark, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received that you'd like to share with our listeners today? It's not all about you, Clark Carlisle. And this was very important when I
0: would have that paranoia Or the need for external validation. I'd walk past someone and think that they were judging me. Well, do you know what? Actually, the vast majority of people are walking past thinking the very same thing. More people are thinking about themselves than
1: you such a wise piece of advice to leave us with clark thank you so much please send my love to Carrie, love to all your family and you know i I just get the sense that 2023 is going to be a fantastic year for you all and you know we're, we're all rooting for you here at jbm so thank you for taking the time and being a 40 minute mentor yeah i really hope we'll get to meet in person at some point soon. wonderful thank you james god bless thanks for having me on cheers clark thank you thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. It's not every day that we get to hear such candid and honest perspectives around mental health and suicide. So I'm particularly grateful to Clark to share his personal story and amazing mentorship with us all today. I really hope that this episode will be helpful for anyone who's currently going through a tough time or anyone supporting their loved ones with their mental health. It's a topic that is deeply personal to me and one that I know we all need to talk about more. So if anyone does need any help, we've left some links with some recommended resources and helplines in the show notes. And if you're a team leader, I'd really recommend you checking out the amazing work that Carrie and Clark are doing with businesses all around the world. Thanks again for listening. And I'll see you again next week for even more Pocket sized Mentorship.